Welcome to PwC's accounting podcast series. I'm Heather Horn. With the new Regulation SK disclosures related to human capital resources becoming effective on November 9th, 2020, it's no surprise that a lot of questions are popping up as calendar year-end companies enter into their year-end reporting. So in this episode, I'll be talking to Sherry Wyatt, a PwC partner and the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Assurance Leader, along with Brandon Yuri, a principal in our organization and workforce transformation group, about the SEC's new human capital disclosure requirements. We'll look at the areas that have been added, expanded, or changed, as well as some of the early trends we're seeing from filers. All of that and more is coming right up, so stick around. So Sheree and Brandon, thank you so much for joining me today for a topic that I know is top of mind for many companies right now. And perhaps just to set the stage, we had new rules or new amendments to Regulation SK in 2020 and both in August and November. And the August amendments modified the disclosures that registrants are required to make about human capital resources, obviously among other things. And then those new disclosure requirements became effective on November 9th. So as I said, definitely top of mind. Um, So can you start by giving a brief overview of what those new human capital disclosure requirements are? Yeah, absolutely, Heather. So historically, companies in their 10Ks and their S1s have uh, simply disclosed a number of employees that they've had. And that had been up for debate for a number of years. What these final rules uh, require is still the disclosure around the number of employees a company has but also a description of its human capital resources, if material to the business as a whole, and if material to a particular segment, that segment should also be identified. It also requires that any human capital measures or objectives, if material, uh, that the registrant focuses on as managing its business should also be disclosed, such as those related to the development, attraction, safety, engagement, and retention of employees. So those are really focused on things that the SEC was able to identify based on academic and empirical evidence over the last 30, 40 years that they found a strong correlation with long-term company success, uh, as well as profitability of a company. And so when you're thinking about these rules, it is principles-based, right? They do apply to any 10Ks and S1 filings after the effective date. And so it leaves a lot of Uh, open-endedness and and questions for companies to comply with these things. But they also went a little bit further and did not define human capital as well. So another thing to uh, specifically note there, and that they also did not uh, adhere to any existing framework for disclosures. Many of them are out there. They decided solely to leave it to what is principles-based for registrants and what's material for each registrant as they make those disclosures. Okay, thank you for that. And I know, you know, in general, when we talk about reporting, I think principles-based is always a positive. I think in this case, though, we've gotten a lot of questions because it's something new, as you said, no definition around human capital. And so given how broad this is, how should companies be thinking about it? If they approach it first and foremost, thinking about human capital, realizing that that was not defined and understanding how that may differ from industry to industry. For example, some companies may rely very heavily on independent contractors, and that could be part of their human capital. So really having a broad understanding of what is that human capital within an organization that a company focuses on, and then to take a step back and think about, well, what is material with respect to 
you know, that human capital? Are there any particular measures uh, that we think we can qualitatively talk about? Are there quantitative metrics that maybe we report out to the CEO or to the board? Uh, really understanding what's important for us. Obviously, companies can go look at some of the existing standards to give them ideas around you know, what the general public and what other institutions are considering as material for themselves. But the expectation generally is that it'll be industry specific. What is considered material for each registrant will vary. It'll also vary based on geography and size of the company, as well as what's going on uh, in the world you know, from a health perspective, such as with COVID. And so it's really taking a step back and understanding you know, what do we think is material to us when we manage our day-to-day business? And how do we take a look at who we define as our human capital? So, Brandon, one thing that definitely stood out to me in the explanation, uh, and I didn't count, but I know it was many times, you mentioned the word material and that you need to consider if a measure or objective is material to an understanding of the business. So how do we think about material? Is it defined or is there a general understanding of how companies should apply that concept? Yeah, so it is not specifically defined, although the SEC is generally considered something material if there is a substantial likelihood that a reasonable investor would consider it important in making an investment or voting decision. Okay, that's, I think, helpful background, but I guess maybe I'll cut to the chase here and Shree just turn to you with the question of, if I'm a company listening, what should I disclose? So is there a framework I can use for reference or is there a list companies you know are starting to use even though the SEC didn't put one out? Like, How should I be thinking about that? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that's been something that has challenged uh, many of the companies that we've been talking to. Brandon kind of hit on the fact of materiality and being what a reasonable investor would consider. And what we've seen over kind of the past few months, even years, has been more investor interest around environmental, social, and governance matters, um, as well as human capital matters. And so it, it really begs the question, you know, again, what's important to those investors and what you should be considering? And so when we think about frameworks, um, there are a variety of frameworks out there that, that Brandon kind of hit on um, at a high level. And that's been the challenge is that there's not a single standard. When we think about financial reporting, there's the FASB. And so you know where you go to. But from a um, human capital and, and a broader ESG perspective, there's multiple frameworks. Um, you have the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, the SASB, you know, Inter- International Organization of Standardization, the World Economic Forum, and all of them have different metrics um, and considerations around human capital. And so it really goes back to evaluating those standards and thinking about what's most relevant for your business, um, relevant for your sector, as well as focus on what is it that leadership in your in your company is using to make decisions around how they manage the business. Thinking about the CEO, um, and I'd like to kind of equate this a bit to the work we do from a segment perspective and what information are you presenting to your, in the segment side, CODM on the, on the um, human capital side, your CEO on a regular basis to help them uh, kind of measure um, the impact of, of, of human capital and manage the business. What information you're presenting to the board of directors um, around your around human capital, and then kind of take taking a look at what have you said externally, whether that's through press releases, through proxy statements, through your corporate responsibility reports. What have you said about human capital that could lead investors to believe that it's material to your business? And so it's really taking stock of 
all those different kind of data points in, in making the determination. One of the questions we see, receive quite a bit is, you know, a lot of companies have corporate responsibility reports. And so should I just be taking what's in that report and putting it into my SEC filings? And the answer is not, not necessarily. You know, what you may say in those corporate responsibility reports may not be material. Um, they may be helpful in kind of helping you describe where you stand, where you're looking to go. But it's a data point that um, we expect, you know, the SEC and others to kind of look at and maybe even ask the question, well, if you said it here, why aren't you saying in your 10K? And so just being sure and being prepared um, to really articulate why it may or may not be material to, to your organization. And then in just in terms of specifics, do you have any specific examples? Or I know that you've done some benchmarking looking at filings people have already made. Um, so any thoughts from that? Right. So we did go through and look at the 930 filings. And so if we think about when when the update amendments were issued, um, there's a relatively short period of time between when it became effective on November 9th and when our 930 year-end companies um, needed, needed to provide these disclosures. Um, and so when looking at those, those filings, we looked at about 150. And I would say that there was a, a mix. We had about, I would say about 78% um, of those filers made both qualitative and quantitative disclosures around human capital. And that, in fact, is actually one of the other questions that we receive quite a bit is, what's the balance between qualitative and quantitative? Many companies just may not be at the point of maturity around the quantitative side to put that into an SEC on disclosure. And so how do I balance that? And certainly Jay Clayton, the former SEC commissioner, um, you know, had indicated that, you know, his belief that it should be both qualitative and quantitative. And so that's a, a you know, critical evaluation. But what we've seen so far is that about 78% of the companies have been doing both to the, you know, the, the kind of the balance is probably more qualitative. But I would expect that for that to continue to evolve. You know, as I said, there was a short period of time between when it became effective um, and when they had to, had to file. And so as we start to look at our 1231 filers and as we start to look at, you know, FY21, I would expect for it to start to be more balanced. Are there any sort of metrics you saw many or most companies disclosing, even things like number of employees, number of contractors or things like that? Or is there not really even a trend like that, that you would feel comfortable drawing conclusions on? Yeah, I would say at a baseline, almost all companies said the number of employees. And that's something, of course, you know, that that many companies were already disclosing. Um, you know, we started to see um, about 50% of companies provide disclosures around um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that you know, marks a really big shift from where we were a year ago uh, today, thinking about you know conversation that I know you had last year, only about 4 to 5% of companies were actually making disclosures around diversity, equity, and inclusion. So the fact that we're at 45%, 46%, even though that may not seem significant, I think that's quite a bit of progress. Um, and again, I think I go back to the fact that very short period of time, this is very sensitive information and data. Um, when we think about kind of data quality and integrity, many companies are pausing to make sure that that's gone through the right process before putting it out into an SEC filing. And so as companies start to get more mature around this type of reporting, I would expect to see that change. Okay. And then maybe specific to diversity, equity, and inclusion, since you mentioned that clearly 2020 has had sort of a shift in how people are thinking about it and, and talking about it. And I think definitely that's an area where stakeholders are very interested in understanding 
how companies are working to create more equity in their workplace, and then, you know, just in general to respond to those types of matters. So is there anything specific when you say companies are disclosing, or you you saw almost half of companies disclosing something, are there any specific types of things people should be thinking about in that area? Yeah, so I would say that most of the disclosures were focused on gender and race, ethnicity, a bit of mix in terms of whether companies purely did just minority or breaking it down by different race and ethnicity. It really comes back to the data that companies not only have, but the comfort that they have around that around that data. But you're you're exactly right that institutional investors have been um, really vocal over the past, you know, over 2020, just around greater transparency on DNI and the information that that companies are disclosing. You know, in fact, you know, NASDAQ is as recently as December filed a proposal with the SEC wanting to require companies to disclose more around the composition of their boards and even requiring companies to have a certain level of diversity on their boards. And so so the momentum is there. Um, and so really it's a matter of um, you know, how, do, how do we get there in terms of companies being more confident and comfortable with disclosing it. So when we think about diversity, equity, inclusion, DEI, it's really a very broad kind of topic. So when we talk about diversity, I think people really jump to representation from a race, ethnicity, gender perspective, but not to forget you know, broader categories, right? So thinking about sexual orientation, veteran status, age, disability as, a, as another kind of metric of diversity. That's information that companies may not be collecting on a regular basis, but that may be something we see as uh, see a shift in in the near future. From an equity side, it's really about are we creating and providing equitable opportunities for all of the employees and, and, and being transparent around, around that information. So whether it's pay equity, equity around promotions and opportunities for advancement, we're seeing some companies provide some transparency around that. Um, and then lastly, inclusion. We did see some um, some companies provide some disclosures around the different employee resource groups that they may have in place, inclusion networks that are really you know trying to support the inclusive nature of their organization. I think you know Brandon hit on before about the material piece and uh, material when it comes to DNI um, has been challenging for many companies to um, really determine. Um, so we all know that from a DNI perspective, it's the right thing to do for this for society to create equitable opportunities for everyone. But making sure that you know people and companies understand that it's not just a great thing to do, but it also has real business impacts in terms of the bottom line um, and the and the a creative nature um, of having diverse representation not only the board, but through the employees. Glad you mentioned the board, because that was actually one of the questions I had for you. As you know, I'm in LA and here in California, there is also initiatives to have representation on boards. You mentioned the NASDAQ proposal as well. So when you, again, drawing conclusions from these 150 filings that you guys looked at, did you see that people are generally disclosing about the board as well as the company? Or is that quite a mix and definitely more to come to see any type of trend. It's a mix. I would say that most, if not substantially, all the companies that did disclose something around DNI did it on the employees more broadly, as opposed to kind of narrowing it down to the board and, and management. But certainly expect for that to change. We we can see that information in corporate responsibility reports that companies have put out. 
Um, so I think it's it's really just we're at the at the starting point of, of that journey. Right. And then one other question. I mean, you and I had talked about this when we were preparing the fact that the 46 percent is kind of like a glass half full or half empty, depending on how you look at it, because you could like it, look at it and say, oh, you know, given what's happened in 2020, that number seems really low but it is high compared to where we've come from. But the other question I was thinking about on that is what if I'm a company that says, okay, I know this is important. Um, It is important for our culture. It is something that we want to start to share with our stakeholders, but I'm not ready yet, or I don't have the numbers to disclose yet, as you spoke about earlier. How are you you responding to those types of questions? Yeah, so I think just to respond around the SEC disclosure, that's where we're seeing companies say, okay, well, maybe I'm going to say more qualitative than quantitative around DNI. And maybe I'm going to talk more around the structure, infrastructure that I have in place in order to drive our, our DNI goals. So whether that's talking about the CDO, uh, the chief diversity officer, um, the CHRO, the you know, chief resource officer's role around diversity and inclusion as a starting point, right? So you're at least saying something about what your commitment is to DNI, um, and then really starting to focus on internally how you can start to get prepared for that greater transparency around around the numbers and around the metrics, right? And so thinking about one, where is the data sourced from, and what process and controls do I have around that data to ensure that if I'm putting it out there, I'm confident in what's being reported? But that's only half the battle. I think there's the data piece, but there's also just the vulnerability that companies need to feel in terms of showing that you're starting from somewhere. Saying nothing just probably raises more questions um, in in terms of where you are in your journey. And so, you know, being bold and disclosing information and showing kind of your commitment and your aspirations is better than saying nothing at this point. So that's what we've been talking to, you know, our clients about is just really, you know, starting somewhere. Don't be shy. Not everyone's going to start out being perfect immediately, but it's what you do from that point forward that's really going to be impactful. Right. Well, and even us as PwC, right, we put out our own report, obviously not an SEC filing, but our own report back, I think, August, September timeframe. And again, you're right, it is kind of, you know, you're putting information out there, but it's a starting point to show that this is a priority for the company. So I guess one other comment, though, from what you just talked about, it sounds like it's fair to say that these are not disclosures that you would expect a company to kind of make this year. And then, you know, we're going to expect to see the same thing every year but you really would be expecting to see evolution year over year as companies, again, kind of embrace this and consider what this means for their company. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it would be just to make this about a one-time disclosure requirement isn't going to help kind of drive the ultimate goal um, around you know creating a more inclusive workplace and opportunities um, for our diverse and um, professionals. Um, so, so yes, I think that being able to show kind of that trend and that impact is really what we're going to be, you know, looking for over over this upcoming year and years. Okay, so then let's turn attention to another topic that um, is obviously very top of mind for companies after what we just experienced in 2020, and that would be the specific impact of COVID-19 on human capital. So, Brandon, ter- maybe turning back to you. What are we seeing in terms of the impact of COVID-19 and what companies are doing and, you know, maybe what they're disclosing? Sure. Great question. And, you know, I think a lot of us have seen 
some of the, uh, the big headlines, a lot of layoffs, a lot of furloughs um, that have been happening across the country, maybe more hard hit on specific industries than others. Obviously, a bigger focus as well on succession planning as a result of the reduced headcount across the company. Interestingly, though, there's also the obvious topic of safety, right? We have COVID. We've got frontline workers. We've got people that are working in an office, may have traditionally sat close together, right, in cubicles. And now we had to address that. Obviously, a lot of people have transitioned to working from home. Those are the big headline things. But as time progressed over 2020, we saw more focus on some of the basic things that maybe we had taken for granted. And that's just uh, the safety of the workplace, right? Is it always safe uh, for an individual to work out of their home? Or if they had to go somewhere else, is it safe for them to do so there? Uh, and a big focus as well around mental well-being, right? How do we make sure that people are staying mentally safe, right? And have the appropriate mental well-being, especially if they live alone. We were seeing a lot of that happen. A lot of people have a lot of stress as a result of working alone uh, at home, you know, and do so for extended periods of time. So a much broader focus around what safety really means and what well-being really means as well as relation to that. But when you take a step back as well and say, well, we have to manage a workforce, right? And we're shut down in a lot of places. We've closed offices in a lot of places. We're expecting people to work remotely, but we can't stop hiring, right? In many companies, how do we onboard them? How do we train them? How do we create the networking required, right? To really have a robust uh, workforce? And how do we continue to ensure diversity? Uh, you know, that was something that we were really making great prides on or great progress on over the last couple of years because we were, you know, uh, with one another continuing to support that effort. And sometimes that, you know, was at risk of being siloed because everyone was working remotely and wasn't really paying attention to that. So a lot around just the basic aspects that I think a lot of companies had focused on in the latter half of 2020 how do we run a business on a purely remote basis? Additionally, if we're going to support on a long-term basis, this remote workforce, and not only just uh, support people in working from home, but support people working from anywhere in the country or potentially anywhere in the world, does that require us to do something different with respect to our compensation and benefit programs? Right? Some companies have seen a situation where, well, if people are permanently now in one state, do we need to tweak our benefit programs for the laws in that state around maybe health care uh, or if compensation and cost of living is significantly different in one state versus another? Should we make adjustments? And we've seen a lot of companies make those kinds of adjustments as well. And so some of those strategic things have become more front and center. But that also calls to light some of the more tactical things, such as if we now have people working in a variety of states where we didn't before, how do we manage simple payroll reporting aspects? right? And basic compliance and employment taxes and things of that nature. So big impact from COVID uh, on the workforce. Obviously, the most pressing ones, is, as I noted, were some of the layoffs and, and furloughs that had happened. But as we transitioned more into this long-term remote working uh, strategy, it's introduced a whole host of things that companies have had to think about for the first time, really, on how to manage a remote workforce and, and really a geographically diverse one. And I guess, Brandon, in the context of how you just talked about this, it seems like in some level, COVID-19 probably impacted every company. Are we seeing that 
almost all or, or every company did make disclosures about the impact of COVID in these human capital uh, disclosures that have been made so far. Yeah. And, and, you know, a little bit different than DEI, we did actually see substantial disclosures. Almost 95% of companies had some discussion around the topic of COVID and the impact on its workforce. The majority of those disclosures were qualitative and just talking about how they're adapting to, you know, the different working environment. But we did see almost all of them make such disclosures. And then, Brandon, I started asking Sheree about this, and then we started talking about uh, DEI. But any other sort of specific types of disclosures we saw other than maybe employee headcount, as I mentioned? Yeah, sure. We did, again, take a look at all the filings through November 30th. And in those, we did take a look at the types of topics that companies had disclosed as a result of those filings. Number one was around employee demographics, so things such as headcount, the geographic distribution, what their job functions are, maybe education level, as well as whether or not people are regular time or or full-time or part-time. We did see a decent amount of discussion as well around the employee life cycle. And as I was mentioning, that was uh, a bigger focus for companies in the latter half of 2020 as a result of COVID. That is, how do we hire and recruit people, right? How do we onboard them? What is the learning and development path for those people look like? How do we actually retain people in this environment? Uh, think about mobility and succession planning, as well as a strategy to try to reduce turnover, given that maybe a lot of the things a company had been doing to reduce turnover is focused on culture, which you tend to lose a lot in a remote environment. And then third, uh, most common thing we saw talked about was total rewards, right? Again, as most companies know, the most um, uh, generally the most important topic for employees is how much they're being paid, right? What types of benefits they received. So we did see a lot of discussion around total rewards, as we would expect. Obviously, in light of COVID, we saw discussions around health and safety as well. And we saw uh, some discussion around labor relations as well. And that was a topic that we used to see, you know, as a risk factor, talking about unionized employees and the risks of strikes and so forth. So we did continue to see discussions around labor relations. And the the one interesting thing that I was seeing as part of that, uh, less companies uh, were disclosing this. But around employee feedback, there's really a big movement around companies surveying their employees and asking, you know, uh, for their feedback around how the company is doing, how they feel about the organization and so forth. And a lot of companies were just putting that out there saying we, in fact, do this and we ask for this feedback to make sure that we are creating a work environment that the employees prefer. A lot of those items you talked about are quantitative, but many of them, and maybe even most of them, were more from a qualitative side. And Sheree, we did talk about this a little bit, that there's like sort of a mix of the quantitative and qualitative. But to the extent that someone did decide to, to go ahead and make these more quantitative types of disclosures, what did you see from the sort of reliability and consistency of that data? I know you mentioned this briefly, but how should companies be thinking about that if they do want to make a quantitative disclosure? Yeah, so a lot of this human capital related data doesn't reside in the same type of, you know, systems that we rely upon from a financial reporting side. So they don't have the similar kind of controls process. And so, you know, as a starting point, we've been really you know, talking to companies around making sure good connectivity between the HR function that typically owns a lot of this information and financial reporting, um, internal audit, all of the kind of people who know how to get to an SEC reporting kind of quality type reporting, right, around data. So understanding, you know, where is the data sourced? 
what type of um, manipulation to the data may be required in order to get to the metric that's being reported, um, how manual is that process, obviously the reliability of the under, underlying data, the frequency in which the data is, is updated, all of that kind of going through a similar kind of process flow that you would do for financial information. We're, we're seeing companies do that for this non-financial information, whether it's in reaction to this human capital standard or even ESG more broadly. And so that's where we've seen companies that have done a quantitative disclosure um, really focus on and get, gaining that comfort um, around the process and the quality of the data that they're ultimately disclosing. To the extent that you go through that kind of process and you you see that you're maybe not comfortable with that information, that's where we're seeing companies make a decision to say, okay, well, maybe I'm not going to go quantitative in this upcoming filing. Let me focus on the qualitative aspects of what we're doing and then start to put the right kind of process and controls and rigor in place for that for, for the next filing to be able to disclose the quantitative information. Okay. So then, um, Shri, another question that I would have is, you know, when we talk about these challenges around the other the underlying data, then what should you be thinking about to sort of address or work through the challenges? Yeah. So you know, one that's kind of really developing a process similar to your financial reporting. So I know that probably makes many people uneasy thinking that you're going to have, you know, SOX level controls for uh, for, for non-financial information. But there, there is some level of importance to ensure that what you're putting out there into SEC filings, you know, doesn't set the company up for um, a potential kind of, you know, error in, in what they're reporting, right? So I think kind of establishing effective process and controls for each of the disclosures is where we're gravitating towards. And thinking about kind of each period where you're going to be updating the information, what is that process going to be for revisiting those key metrics? Making sure you have the right governance oversight of the data as well as of the reporting. So making sure that it's going through the disclosure committee, it's going through an audit committee type, you know, review, you know, in, ensuring that, you know, in, in some cases, internal audit is involved. I've seen many companies, you know, really engage internal audit to make sure that, um, you know, the right process and controls are in place to be comfortable with the data that's that's put out there. Um, I mentioned this before, it's just I think the communication between the different functions responsible for these disclosures are really important. Um, so, you know, human resources, the chief diversity officer, your CHRO, really communicating with financial reporting, um, you know, the controller or the CFO um, to, to ensure that one, what financial reporting wants to disclose and thinks required, you know, matches with what you know, HR is comfortable with, right? Um, making sure that HR understands, obviously, what financial reporting is looking to disclose, but also kind of the, the vintage and, and, and the history behind the, the data that they're looking to disclose is, is very important. And many times we see that those functions are more or less not talking to each other. So there's that level of coordination that that's certainly very important. And I don't want to forget about the fact that you know this. we don't want this just to be a, a one and done reporting. Yes, we're doing this as part of you know, the, the SK, you know, disclosures, but there's also a lot of insights that the companies can have through the data that they're accumulating to really kind of drive um, meaningful change from a, whether it's diversity inclusion, um, whether it's, you know, human capital, you know, uh, well-being, whatever it is, being able to really use that information through different visualization tools to drive change and impact. One of the things I was thinking of is, you know, we've been having these broader conversations around ESG 
And, you know, those types of, or that type of reporting and all of these recommendations you're making apply to human capital, but actually to any of that, that type of data. So definitely something for companies to think about and probably a topic for a whole other podcast. So, so we won't go further there right now. You actually made a great point because I, I, what I find interesting in a lot of my human capital's discussions is maybe the limited appreciation that human capital is a part of ESG, right? And so you have your corporate responsibility and sustainability kind of groups that are driving the kind of ESG agenda um, that may not be kind of connecting with kind of the human capital side of it, right? So it's kind of a three-pronged, you know, you have your sustainability, you have your human capital, and then you have your, you know, financial reporting and really getting all three of those groups to work together um, and create consistency across all the discussion they're having has been a challenge um, that many companies have faced. Yeah, definitely a worthy goal, I think, for 2021 and beyond. So then maybe to almost wrap things up, one of the questions I had as we were talking about the new rules is, if I'm remembering correctly, there were a few commissioners that kind of wrote, I'll call it a a dissent, although I'm not sure that's the formal term to say like, hey, you know, we think that the SEC should have gone further with this. So just asking to take out your crystal balls with some of the changes we may expect at the SEC. Do you think we're going to see this go even further, maybe in the upcoming years? Yeah, I think there is great speculation that we're going to see it go further. Um, as you mentioned, um, we had a few SEC commissioners um, really question whether this disclosure went far enough, not only with human capital, but also thinking about ESG um, more broadly. And then we see with the with the new Biden administration, two of the big things on their agenda are diversity, equity, inclusion, and, and ESG, right? So in the administration really you know, suggesting that companies should provide more transparency and disclosure and being more rules-based as opposed to principles-based. And so um, question I received quite frequently is like, okay, well, what is the time frame? Are we talking about six months? Are we talking about a year? Recognizing that this doesn't kind of happen overnight in terms of being prepared for these disclosures. And I wish I had that crystal ball, but I do think that we're moving in that direction for greater disclosure around human capital, DNI, and ESG. And so I think it really, you know, is on companies to start being prepared for that action. So definitely sounds like more to come on this. So um, with that, definitely want to thank both of you for joining me today. Uh, One of the things that I do like to always do at the end of the podcast is wrap up on a slightly lighter note. And uh, my question for January actually fits right in with this discussion. It's on sort of your personal human capital, which would be around New Year's resolutions. And first of all, if you believe in them. And second of all, if you're willing to share I haven't always been one to actually have New Year's resolutions, right? But when I think about it, it's probably more aligned with what, you know, people typically have had, which is to try to be healthier, but but to try to have more uh, a healthier lifestyle if we stay in a remote work environment on a long-term basis. Because I used to, you know, walk more to the office, right? Take stairs versus elevators and don't have that opportunity anymore. So trying to find a way to be more active while we're in a uh, continued remote work environment. Definitely a great resolution. And um, Shri, how about you? For me, this year, I I became an empty nester Uh, (laughs) starting this month. And so um, for me, it's trying to figure out what I like to do (laughs) without having, uh, you know, without having kind of my daughter kind of really driving my my calendar all the time. So uh, so my new, New Year's resolution is find what I love to do. That is a fun resolution and and definitely something that I hope you enjoy exploring. And I I do think 
you know, this is a perfect time for a reset. I think everyone's ready after 2020. So, um, so anyway, hopefully more, more positive to come on that. And again, thank you both for your insight. Really appreciate you joining me. Join me back here every Tuesday for new episodes on all things accounting and reporting. And on Thursday, join me for our series for CFOs and controllers. This week, my guests will be Roy Weathers, Vice Chair of Societal Engagement and Policy Solutions at PwC and CEO of CEO Action for Racial Equity. Roy and I will be talking about the opportunity and responsibility that corporate America has to embrace change and social justice. It's a big topic and an even more important mission, so I hope you'll join me. So that you never miss an episode of any of our podcasts, subscribe to this series wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all the latest content, let's connect on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.